This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Dr. Sandra Barrett. Sandra is a nationally recognized speaker on mind-body medicine. She earned her PhD in biochemistry from the University of Illinois Medical School and completed postdoctoral training in immunology and hematology at the University of California Medical School. She has taught at UC Berkeley, UC San Francisco, and the California Institute of Integral Studies. With Sounds True, Sandra has a new book, Secrets of Your Cells, Awakening the Body's Intelligence, in which she explores our body's cells from perspectives both scientific and sacred. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Sandra and I spoke about her background in cellular biology. We also talked about how our intelligence lives within every cell of our body through the fabric of our cytoskeleton. And finally, and most importantly, we talked about the lessons, lessons on living, that Sandra has learned from tuning to her cells, what she calls our greatest living ancestors. Here's my very intriguing and provocative conversation with Sandra Barrett. Sandra, from reading your book, what I felt was, here's a woman who has fallen in love with the cell. Now, first of all, do you think that's fair to say that, that you've fallen in love with the cell? Absolutely. In fact, before um, this conversation, I was spending some time with them and realizing I really had fallen in love with them, and I can have a you know, a real relationship with them. And it may sound crazy, but, um, you know, one of the names I wanted to give the book was Romancing Your Cells. (laughs) Okay. So tell me what you mean that you were spending some time with your cells. I mean, aren't we always spending, that's all we have is our cells. What do you mean by that? That, that's true. Well, I I went and took some time to meditate and basically asked my cells what they wanted me to say, what was the most important to them. And I, and one of the re- reasons I say this is it, it brings me back to when I was writing this book and teaching a workshop uh, at Noetic Sciences. And I was having a really hard time teaching the workshop because I was so into my head. You know, I was in the science mode. Yeah. And I went into the garden on Sunday after, Sunday morning and said, you know, I've got to shift something because um, I'm not revealing the cells 
from their spiritual perspective. I'm not revealing. I'm not sharing my heart. I'm just not in. I'm just in a you know the intellectual space, and that's not my experience of the cells. So I sat in the garden and uh, you know went through one of my rituals, which was you know thanks for being here, thanks for being my support team. And I hear this, where is it coming from? I don't know, but what I hear is, you finally got it, thanks. Mm. And then this conversation that is coming from somewhere else other than my intellect was telling me um, how the cells have been carrying me along to (laughs) to transmit or send this information out. And... It took me, you know, to someplace else that this wasn't possible, except people talk to plants, people talk to guides, guides um, give them information from outside of their intellect. And I was able to go back into my um, workshop um, and come from a deeper place, you know, the place of really being in love with myself and being in love with life. So, you know, I was a little nervous about doing this podcast and, you know, what can I say? Um, how am I going to answer questions? And it's like, no, remember, remember who we are. So it's like, yeah, they're always here, but are we in conversation with them is a whole other uh, story. Well, first of all, I just want to thank you for speaking from your experience and being willing to speak vulnerably and transparently, because I really appreciate that, and I think we need more of that. So I I just want to begin by thanking you for that. Oh, you're welcome. And I want to continue on that vein, which is help me understand how you experience intelligence or wisdom coming from yourselves, not coming from what you're describing as the intellectual processing of Mm. life. So you're asking not to scientifically describe their intelligence, but how I experience it? Yeah. Let's start there. Okay. Um, Well, sort of to bridge the science, one of, because I think that's really important for me and, and your listeners, is the cell's intelligence is embedded in their fabric, um, in their innards, inside, and and there's, it's their strings. So if we think of our cells as being um, constructed of strings, what we know about strings is they resonate with sound. Stretching and moving them influences um, how the strings impact the cells and what the cells decide to do. So how I access that intelligence is I work with sound, and I can work with sound, and it takes me into a more peaceful place. Um, I can do Qigong. Um, I practice movement. The, the practices that I talk about in the book are all practices I've been doing and teaching for basically decades. I just never had an explanation of how it might work in the body. Mm-hmm. I just did them because I felt better for doing them. So it's like, well, well, now I know where cellular intelligence resides, at least we think that this week. Um, and how I access that place is then doing some of these practices that make me feel more whole. 
mm-hmm. uh, get me out of my, you know, doldrums and my depressions and everything else. So, you know, and I think, again, because I do have that scientific inclination, because I know there's a physical structure now that can be accessed with many healing practices, you know, especially sound and movement, that it may, it convinces me that what I'm doing isn't a waste of time if I think I'm taking, <laughs> if I think I'm wasting time by, what, mm-hmm. are you, what are you humming M for, you know? Go to work. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, let, I'd like to understand more about the strings inside the cell. Help me, take me inside the cell and help me understand this cellular intelligence as you see it, as you experience it. Okay. Um, well, first of all, first of all, we know we for years we thought the genes were the intelligence, and Bruce Lipton has done an amazing job to teach people and excite people about their cells. And his perspective is it's the receptors on the cell, on the cell membrane, that are receiving information. That's the intelligence, and you know I was thinking about that yesterday and realizing, oh well, that's the forgive me for being um well f- for saying that's the male scientist perspective that it's on the outside of the cell where intelligence resides in fact a donald ingbar uh scientist in harvard uh um, at least 15 years ago i had written about the fabric of the cell he calls it the architecture of life and what he basically showed um was that the receptors don't work. <laughs> receptors are antenna. They're picking up information. But what responds to the antenna is this fabric of tubes and strings and microtubules that runs throughout the cell. Now, a lot of people, you know, when I learned about cells, we heard the term protoplasm. It was like there's gel in the cell. That's all we knew. And, you know, now because it, with new technologies, people were able to show, no, there's this underlying webbing that connects the cells from side to, that connects the outer to the inner, and that the mechanical tension on that fabric or on those cells, the forces on those cells, influences what the cells choose to do. And so what Ingvar showed, which to me, you know, it was life, life-changing for me to read about this. What he showed um, in a dish, um, if you put cells in a plastic dish and you try to, you know, you're trying to grow them, when the cells are stretched out, they express one set of genes, the genes to keep on reproducing themselves. When the cells let go of some of that tension, they're not holding so attached to the dish, they start maturing. So it, they, the cells have the same genes in them. The only thing that's changed is the tension on their fabric. And then when cells fully let go of their tension, another gene is expressed, the you know, self-suicide gene, death. So purely on a physical level, um, we've seen that mechanical stresses on our cells influence basically their decision-making, which genes they express. And 
And then, of course, well, which activities are they doing based on um, the structure of their cells? You know, are we, you know, I look at it in terms of real life. Well, you know, am I stressed out, strung out? Um, Are I'm all balled up? What is our, what is our um, postures due to our cells? What is letting go due to our cells? Um, how do we put that into real life? You're saying a lot of different things, and I want to see if I can tease out some of them. So okay. you mentioned the receptors on the outside of the cell that Bruce Lipton has said they're very important in cellular intelligence, and you said that was a masculine form. So how does the receptors interrelate with what you're describing here as the strings and the level of tension inside the cell? Uh, you know, it was, when I listened yesterday to your podcast with Bruce, that's why I was thinking, oh, he's thinking the external, which is where we all start, and a feminine perspective of science may be the inside, you know, the hidden. And so the receptors of the cell, just like he has said and Candace Pert have said, they're receiving information. They're receiving the chemical information, the molecular information. If we're stressed, the body's going to be um, churning out a lot of you know stress molecules, epinephrine, cortisone, etc. And the receivers on the cell, the antenna on the cell, um, will attach to those molecules. You know, it's like the radio. You know, we've got these receivers or these antenna, but until we turn the knob and change things inside the cell, there's no response. So you've got those receivers. I've got all this adrenaline on my cell, on the surface of my cell, but the cell has choice-making in that at some deep level in terms of what makes the cell respond. Just receiving the information doesn't automatically make make the cell respond. You see what I'm saying? The receptors are connected to the fabric. Yeah. And it, maybe it's become semantics, uh, whether the brain is on the outside of the cell. To me, the, the brain is on the inside of the cell. Yeah. Because with all the receptors loading up the surface membrane, that isn't necessarily, that isn't all it takes for the cell to respond. If the cell's fabric doesn't respond, there is nothing happening. Yeah. Well, whether the brain of the cell is on the inside or the outside or both, it's a pretty big leap, I think, still for most people to believe that intelligence isn't located in the brain, but that it's located in the cells. That's already a pretty big leap for most people, wouldn't you say? Well, it's different kinds of intelligence, isn't it? I mean, the the intelligence that operates us is purely at a cellular level. I mean, each each cell is, you know, a community in itself, and then the community of cells sort of hold, you know, not sort of, does hold us um, as living sacred beings. Um, yeah, and I I think... You know, if we think about people, most people think of intelligence in the brain in our heads. Um, well, the brain does a lot of the orchestration of sending out molecules and things like that. 
but who's running the brain? I mean, where is mind? Which is another quality to me of intelligence. Where is consciousness? How does that influence us at a physical level? And um, you may be familiar with Stuart Hameroff's work. Um, he's down at the University in Arizona. And um, what Hameroff and Penrose have basically tried to show us, and I think fairly convincingly, that actually the fabric, the microtubules in the cells, um, are the place where consciousness, <laughs> where consciousness flows. So that there's, a, there's some more evidence for people who need it that intelligence and consciousness can actually be found from cell to cell. Hmm. Now, I think it might help our listeners, though, to get a little more familiar with how you fell in love with the cells, your cellular uh-huh. romance, if you will. So maybe you could briefly give us that background story on your cellular romance. Sure, love to. Um, I'm trained, I was trained as a biochemist. So in going for a PhD, basically I'm working with isolated chemicals, um, how, you know, trying to understand um, actually how did the influenza virus infect cells. But it was from purely chemical perspective. I went and took a postdoc in uh, immunology and hematology at the University of California, San Francisco. And uh, I, I chose a project that was as close related to biochemistry as possible because uh, I didn't really know cells. I knew chemistry. And uh, so the project I chose was one that worked with looking at little boys had a genetic disease in which they were dying of infection. And I, my job was to figure out why. Why weren't these cells working? So I immediately had to start looking at cells under the microscope. And once I did that, it was like this light went on. One, it was amazing for me to see, oh, these little human white blood cells, if I put them in a, on a microscope slide and throw in a couple plastic beads, these cells know that there's something strange there, and you see the cells moving under the, you know, through the microscope, going for these plastic beads. And I thought, <laughs> it was totally incredible for me. You know, it was just a whole new world um, that not only did I fall in love with cells, it took me more to, you know, God, you know, God invented these. <laughs> he, he, she, they designed these. These are not, these are pretty wise warriors that know what to do. It isn't just an accident of biological evolution. So it was like that aha moment of, you know, really seeing, seeing them under the microscope, seeing everything under the microscope changed my perception for sure of, of life. Now, I'm curious, Sandra, it seems that there's an underlying assumption in your work. And tell me if this is an assumption or if this is something that you feel really solid behind or what, which is that what we discover about an individual cell, we can say about an individual human organism, that they're analogous in some way. Is it fair to say that that is an assumption in your work? 
That is an assumption. That basically that um, I'm projecting that the cellular beha- cellular. Well, I'm glad. Here- I'm glad you said it, not me. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> No, totally. It's like I could see everything they were doing. I'm projecting into another language, one of, you know, human life and spiritual life. So it's definitely an assumption. Okay, and help me feel comfortable with why this assumption works for you. I mean, I understand that it works in the Mm. world of poetry, but you're a scientist. Right. So how does making an an assumption like that, there's a parallel between the function of the cell and the function of the human being. How does that work for you that you're comfortable with it? Um, Maybe some of this comes from my backstory or my work spending years and years, you know, doing things out of the microscope. Um, One... In the early days of my doing science, um, I was developing diagnostic tools of human leukemias. And what I observed was, and I'm sure this is one of the turning points, what I observed was, oh, when you look at those cancer cells or leukemia cells or cancer cells or the cancer of the white blood cells, when you look at them under the microscope, they're absolutely chaotic in what they look like, how they develop. There's no order at all compared to a normal white blood cell. And I then leaped to, oh, well, those cells create chaos in the body, and they create chaos for the person, and they create chaos for that person's family. So I was looking at a lot of this whole concept of form and function, that what they do, um, what cells do, uh, what what they look like influences what they do, and extrapolating. I guess I, that's all I can say. Extrapolating that each stage of what they do in terms of uh, a, a perfect example is the recept. The receptor story is so well known to a lot of people. If we think about these molecules that are receptors on the surface of a cell. Those molecules, proteins on the surface of the cell, must embrace um, the messages. They're just not uh, accidental. So there's a real connection between molecules that fit each other. So each step along the way, and, oh, they've got to embrace. And if you, you know, I started reading Teilhard de Jardin, who talked about if there wasn't embrace in the molecules, there couldn't be embrace in us higher-ups. Love couldn't exist. So I began reading more of the literature that uh, theologians were writing about biology. And each time I would think about... You know, like cell sanctuary. Oh well, in the beginning, you know, you start, you study. I study science, and well, how did how did that first cell get formed? Well, molecules had to come together and form. You know, uh, Donald Deemer is one of the first people I became aware of who talked about life needs a place. So until we have the molecules that formed a place for the energy of life and the innards of the cell to form, we don't have, um, we don't have life. 
And so it's like, oh, well, that's creating sanctuary. The molecules are creating sanctuary for life to occur. So each time I was learning about another part of the cell, it became easier and easier for me to see how that was so in real life. And because, um, what can I say, because I have had an experience of the imagination and shamanic practices and other ways of knowing ourselves, it became easier and easier for me to, to make that wild leap that what the cells do, they really are our teachers if we pay attention. Everything they do for life, we need. Uh, everything they need, we need. And I tend to like to translate it into uh, a more sacred literature just because that's who I am at this point in my life. I wouldn't have done it 20 years ago, I am sure. Well, let's take the leap with you. So we're going to leap okay. with you, and we're going to say that we can learn from ourselves about being a human being, and we can learn from their wisdom. Tell us what some of the most important lessons are that you think we can learn from ourselves. Oh, okay. One, well, one of the most important lessons, I think, is, is the letting go. Uh, again, going back to that intelligence of the cell, yeah. when the cells are fully attached to this dish, they're going to keep on repeating their patterns. When we're fully attached to a certain way of life, we keep on repeating ourselves. We're not changing. If we let go, in, in Buddhism, they'll say, let go of your attachments. You become more spiritually mature. Well, you see that, I see that in the cells. Like, well, when the cells let go of some of their attachments, they're not so rigid in their um, holding on. They now become mature because cells can only you know, basically exert either or. They're either reproducing, they're attached to the old program, or they're maturing. And then they had to let go of that old program and turn on another one. All the programs were there. Mm -hmm. And then when they fully let go um, of any of their old programs, um, they program cell death they die. And where, to me, this has become really important in having conversation um, with a, a friend who leads cancer, cancer support groups. He, um, he's, you know, now I think now in his sixth year of being in remission from pretty advanced lymphoma. And um, he was, so I, I had this conversation with him. It's like, well, what do you see in people who go into remission when it's not expected? Or how did you go into remission when the doctors didn't expect you to at all? And he said, his, what he tends to see, and I don't want to make people wrong who don't go into remission and not saying it's all this question of what's in your mind and letting go, but what he had seen were, was that the people who really let go of something big in their life those people went into remissions, not expected. And so when I started having a conversation with him about the cells, it's like, oh, well, when the cells fully let go, they're turning on another gene program 
which has those cells, which has cells die. So the question I have, you know, would be an interesting research protocol somehow, is, is it possible when we let go of something really um, important that's holding us into certain patterns that perhaps we can, the cells that are holding on to the cancer pattern um, can receive the message to let go. We don't need that pattern anymore. We don't need you to grow anymore. We need you to program death. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. Sounds True hosts an annual wake-up festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. This is a gathering of spiritual teachers, artists, poets, and anyone interested in the many faces of awakening. For more information about the Wake Up Festival, please visit SoundsTrue.com forward slash wake up. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, let me ask you a question, Sandra. Sure. If I was doing a type of letting go practice, let's say, I was doing some kind of breathing where I was exhaling and really visualizing, not holding on to anything at all. So I engage in a deep practice like that. What would be happening as I was practicing in that way in my cells? How are my cells responding as I'm doing that type of practice? Great question. Um, This is extrapolation. (laughs) Uh, How I suspect your cells are responding in that they're in a state of resonance, in a state of peacefulness, all of them. So there isn't a tug on them that's saying, oh, you should be struggling about X, Y, or Z. In that letting go, all of our cells go into this place of they're playing the same song. There's a peacefulness that you, if you're in that letting go practice, I'm sure you're aware of. And if we think about, oh, well, then what's happening at the cellular level? Um, they're vibrate, their strings that inside of them is vibrating all at the same rhythm. All the other cells nearby are vibrating at that same rhythm. They start entraining each other into this state of peacefulness, because when we let go, we're more peaceful. And so what's happening also, let's not leave out our receptors, we're in that state of peacefulness, our molecular pharmacy is changing. The molecules that also send peacefulness, uh, we have more of those available than if we're you know, half of our brain is struggling and our liver is struggling and suddenly we're just into that, oh, thank God I'm here. And the cells applaud you when that's it. They say, yay, you got here. Come back again. Now, one of the things that I'm not quite clear on is you talked about cell death. 
when the cells are no longer attached. Can you help me understand that? Sure. Um, well, first of all, most of us are usually are afraid of dying, but a natural process of cell life is that they die. And in normal cell death, um, some people say it's apoptosis. I call it apoptosis. It's a very gentle process. It's assisted suicide, if you will. The cells, it, it's also the ultimate recycle because in natural cell death, the cells are sort of blebbing off and all the pieces that can be reused are reused and the rest goes, you know, in our pee and our poop and we don't need it anymore. So, cell, so our cells have a program for death, natural death. When do our cells normally use it? When we're in the embryo stage and we're, you know, you can picture we were once, we once had fins. What gives us fingers is uh, cell death in that place in between our fingers. If in the developing brain, if a neuron, a cell in the brain doesn't connect to other cells, it programs death. So, um, in, uh, in, in development again, and embryologically, when the thymus, which is the seat of the immune system or the regulator of the immune system, if there are cells in the thymus that will attack us, those cells are programmed to die. So there, it's a natural process. Uh, our normal cells, have, they're going to reproduce about 50 times and then they're programmed to die, programmed to recycle. It's like now give up, give up your, give up your ingredients to somebody else who needs it. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't. Does that clarify the question? Yeah, that's helping me. I guess I'm trying to understand as you were talking about cancer and the power of letting go, and especially letting go of something, you know, huge in your life. And of course, I've heard this from other people that I've interviewed, the power of forgiving someone at a very, very deep level, something we've been holding on to or some other kind of burden we've been carrying that we're quite bitter about, that there can be profound healing effects when people let go. I'm trying to understand, though, when a cell dies, is that positive, negative, it can be both, and and how that relates, let's say, to a situation like cancer and cancer cells? Um, well, when it's, in, in cancer, what we know about cancer now is that we've had a cancer cell needs multiple genetic changes, gene changes, before it becomes a cancer cell. It's not one gene change that makes a cancer cell. And what, we've, what we have learned in some of the cancers, one of the, some of the gene changes relate to, oh, these cells don't die. They've become immortal. They're expressing gene programs that don't let them die when they should. Hmm. And can we change that gene program to one that facilitates their death or facilitates their growing up. Um, in the days when I had a laboratory um, at, UC, at UC California um, in San Francisco, uh, my last couple of years of research was 
seeing, can we make cancer cells? I wasn't looking. I was Basically, the question I was asking is, can we make cancer cells die or grow up? Do we have to always use cytotoxic chemicals that are you know, killing more than the cancer cells? So I was able in the laboratory to basically take human cancer cells and convince them, if you will, with normal chemicals like vitamin A to change their, some of their expression. We didn't know as much about genes then as we did now, but I saw that while we can take these cancer cells from a person out of their body, put it in the laboratory, give them a non-toxic chemical, and now these cancer cells that only showed immature properties and only showed a rigidity in their physical structures, now suddenly some of those cells showed properties that they were, they've become mature cells. Um, they shifted some of their abilities, if you will. They grew up. So the question becomes now, can we shift them further? One, to either um, reinstate the program for cell death or turn off the program that says you have to keep on reproducing themselves. And, I mean, what we're seeing in the, in the cancer world, separate from, you know, not separate from the cell, understanding the cell, is that, you know, scientists are showing if we change the environment, again, a lot of it's in the test tube, if we change the environment that the cancer cells are on, it changes what they do. It, for instance, um, Valerie Weaver at the University of Pennsylvania showed that if she put breast cancer cells on a rigid environment, that they kept on expressing breast cancer genes. But if she put them on basically the equivalent of a soft pillow, jello, they no longer express their cancer genes. So to me, the you know the world of um, helping people heal with cancer, um, we can extrapolate what's happening in the world of ourselves. And I always, you know, it's because you know one of the my pathways was to start working in groups with people with cancer, even though I was a scientist or am a scientist, I'm not sure which, is that we don't make people feel guilty by saying, well, if you only were less rigid or if you only let go of your attachments, then your cancer would disappear. You know, I think that's always a danger Mm -hmm. um, of saying, well, if you only let go of something big, you haven't done it, so you're going to die of your disease. Um, it's like, how do we talk about this so it empowers people? Where do I let go of my rigidity? You know, to take it, where do I let go of my rigidity? What am I holding on to I don't need to hold on to? Does that make me feel better? Does the cancer disappear or not? How do I feel better? You know, it's like going into that deep letting go place you're talking about. We, we feel better there. Does that reverse our diseases? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that I'm not clear about is you're talking about how cells can die 
or they can grow up or mature. You've used that phrase. I'm a little unclear. Right. What, is, what does that mean for a cell to grow up or mature? Okay, great question. Um, let's look at the immune c- c- cells as, to start with. Um, if uh, the cells are, if, if a white blood cell is given, you know, a signal that there's a virus in the area, the first thing that family of immune cells are going to do, they're going to keep on reproducing so we have lots and lots of immune cells, lymphocytes, to be able to recognize that virus. So there's that reproductive phase. But now if we want that immune cell to be able to really do its work instead of its work of reproduction, if we wanted to do its work, it's got to make a whole lot of other kinds of chemicals um, and signals to be able to destroy the virus or virus-infected cells. So that's a property of a mature cell. So the lymphocyte goes through a reproductive phase to make more of what we need, and then it's like, okay, we have to stop reading the reproductive program, and we read the program of time to grow up, time, time to you know, be the adult. What, what, what's your purpose? Why are you here? Oh, my purpose is to produce all these molecules and signals that are going to eradicate the virus infection. So it's turning, you know, the immune cell has the programs to reproduce, has the programs to mature, but it can only do one or the other, one at a time. Mm-hmm. So it turns off the reproductive cycle to now I'm grown up. Now mm-hmm. I got to do my job, and then when I'm finished doing my job, uh, maybe I'm maybe the my me as that cell is going to program time to leave, make space for other cells, mm-hmm. and I program death. Okay. So letting go of our attachments, letting go in a big way. That's one of the things that the cells can teach us how valuable that is. What else would you say we can learn from our cells? Hmm. Well, I think one of the other places is I, I go into this place of understanding resonance and being able to entrain ourselves in a state of peacefulness. And, you know, it sounds true, it's not surprised that one of the things I've learned from the cells is that sound helps our cells go to that place of peacefulness. And that sound, uh, and when I started working with sound, um, I've got to be very honest, I was super uncomfortable because I never knew how it worked. And I didn't want to get lost into the physics of sound. But when I would work with sound in groups of people, like use sound to go to a part of your body that feels like it's pain, you know, you feel pain. Um, and people would get it and they'd say, oh, I could really feel that place in my body. Or I'm still practicing with the sound um, and sound is the only thing that relieves my pain that it's that basic um, elemental design of our cells that 
Now, again, I keep on going back to that same structure, that same fabric, because we have in ourselves now this place that we know where sound works. It isn't just changing the brain waves. Um, it isn't just getting us up to dance. Um, we have this structure that resonates with sound. And what we know, if you know, you've drummed, you know that you start drumming, the nearby drum head is going to start responding to that, and uh, tuning force can respond to other sounds that are in the same sort of vibe, that our cells have a way to respond to sound. And to me, that, that becomes more important probably than anything else, because it's, it's showing me that a lot of the healing strategies that have evolved over ages um, that might look like now new agey kinds of things. Yeah, but we have a structure in ourselves that can respond to it. We're not just saying, well, sound is good for you. It, it make, For me, you know, who's been an, an eternal skeptic, it made me see that it made it more real. It made these healing practices like Qigong or yoga. Uh, we've got structures that respond to that. We're not just saying, oh, because people have done it for thousands of years, that's why it's good. The the modern person, I think, um, wants to have, well, show me how it works in the cell. Show me how it works. And um, you can experience the sound by you know playing music that makes you feel good or slows you down or speeds you up or depresses you. And it's not just what we're getting through our ears and our brain. It's like, oh, well, I can feel myself, I, mean, I can imagine myself responding to, to music that puts me um, into a, a sacred place, a mantra. How, where, where, where's mantra um, being responded to at a cellular level? Oh, well, we've got a place. Mm-hmm. Now, what you're saying is very wild, Sandra, so I want to see if I understand it. <laughs> so what you're saying is that in all the cells of my body, these cells have a fabric. That fabric is made of strings, and those right. strings are resonating with sound such that all the cells in my body could be coming into some type of peacefulness or resonant state and that's happening at the cellular level, and we know that now because the intelligence lives in these strings. Yep. You got it. That's now, pretty, why is that wild? Uh, <laughs> I think that it makes me have the experience that all the cells in my body are listening in a certain kind of way, and I think that's a wild thought. Well, they are, I'll, tell, I'll tell you an interesting experience about listening, um, because I've certainly used the cells as my teachers. Um, and when I hear somebody, what usually happens is my mind goes into the critic. I'm kind of criticizing them, judging them. I've got this conversation going on in my head. And the awareness of cells are listening all the time. I started paying attention uh, God, am, am I listening or am I having 14 other conversations going on? Um, and so it, it has brought me back to, can I just listen? So perfect example, 
And I do that much better now. Perfect example is yesterday a friend came into my office and she saw the book. You know, I received the galleys on Monday. Uh, and she saw the book and the first thing she did was criticize it. You know, all the things, because she's been in publishing and all the things. And my tendency is has always Well, clearly been we don't want to listen to her. Clearly we're not listening to no, her. All my, no. All my no, cells are saying definitely no. Not. Definitely not. But usually I become defensive and I react or I've got all this stuff going on in my head. And I just sat there and, you know, it's like, okay, that's what she does. I knew she, I know she, she's a critic. Uh, she left my office and I thought... Okay, just really let it go. I mean, I must have been in such a different state because a couple of hours later, she came back into my office and said, congrats on your book. It's really good. I'm sorry I was so critical. And I didn't do anything differently except I didn't go into my internal reactive mode. I was listening. So all of my cells, I must have set up a different field, if you will, that changed that she could change. I mean, it was when I shared the story with a mutual friend, she was shocked because she knows this woman never apologizes. And uh, I was like, okay, listening, um, getting into the habit of listening um, has changed my field, has changed the energy. I mean, the other part of the cellular fabric is they're just not responding to what's outside. They're the um, resonators. They're also sending out, you know, like the heart math work talks about the electromagnetic field of our brain and our heart. And, well, each cell has that. Each cell, Basically, think about each cell has their heart and sending out a field. Um, of energy that allows somebody else to respond differently, starting with ourselves, ourself. Mm-hmm. Now, you're saying something very interesting to me here. Do the cells in our heart send out a different magnetic field than cells in different parts of our body, cells in the brain or cells in tissues, etc.? Well, according to heart math, they're a much bigger magnetic field. So they may have more power to, um, you know, I, I, and since they're, I'm just sort of thinking out loud to your question, since they're muscle, they're muscle cells, they're going to have more of this fabric than, say, liver cells. So meaning they've got more strings to play. So they may send out more uh, of those messages and more of those vibes in the field. I mean, in, in, um, you know, the heart math work, the work of Paul Pearsall, who talks about the mind and the heart and the, you know, people who get, you know, heart transplants, some percentage of them, the people who get heart transplants, um, pick up some of the behaviors, at least short-term, pick up some of the behaviors of the person who gave them the heart. Um, is it in the field, you know, of those cells and the intelligence of the cells? Are they still beating out that? I'd say yes, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I think cells, there are cells that have more power because they have more strengths. 
but you know one of the practices I teach, which is probably the most uh, probably the most important, is this gratitude practice where ultimately you you're getting into the heart of your you know you're getting to your heart and you're you're remembering an experience of gratitude or feeling grateful for something that someone else did and you know people can get to that experience it's an embodied experience and then you know t- saying well let's use that heart to send out you know the the communication to all the other cells you know, experience that that heart that's in a place of gratitude can set up all the other cells listening to the same story. Like, oh, okay, that's kind of a cool idea. I can do that. I've done it when I've really needed to. I've seen it useful, and, you know, people after I, I was scheduled to teach in all the places that were hit uh, after 9-11, not <laughs> something I wished I had to do because it was going into warfare and I was totally strung out in terms of oh my god how am I going to teach health professionals to come to a place of peacefulness when I'm freaked out myself of what's happened what do I have to give them and you know the insight was give them this simple gratitude exercise get them into their heart Um, does that bring them to a place of peacefulness because I didn't think science was going to help them and um i was really surprised to see you know in a you know it's different when you're working with 10 people in a group but when you're working with 200 in a hotel room i'm always you know <laughs> it's like what are people going to get when you're in a room full of strangers especially after such a, a the attack that we had in this country um so it's, it, for me it's like well i've learned some things that even under under those conditions you know, I could go in, you know, I was going into my heart, into that place of, and getting my whole body to be in an entrained state or a resonant state. It's like, okay, I'm peacefulness for at least the hours I'm teaching. I could at least uh, transmit that or send that to these people who need it. Uh, they don't need, you know, like I say, they don't need science for CEUs. They needed real, they needed support. Now, Sandra, you said something that I was unfamiliar with. I'd never really heard, actually, that there were strings and this fabric inside the cells, but that our heart cells have more strings than other cells in our body. I'm just guessing. I mean, guessing because they're muscles, and the muscles are strings, basically. The, you know, muscle proteins, actin and myosin, the things that cause, you know, if you think about cells that have to, whose work is to contract and relax, that's that mechanical tension again on the strings of the cell. And the strings aren't just in the fabric of the cell for a heart cell. The heart cell has all this musculature that creates its structure. So there's got to be, I mean, you know, it's like I'd never thought about the question until you asked it. Uh-huh. Um, so there's there's definitely more um, more structures that would respond that are respond able to respond to sound to emitting um, electromagnetic fields. 
Now, Sandra, there's actually a lot of things that I want to talk with you about, so we're going to have to have another conversation soon. So that'll have to happen. But in the meanwhile, just to wrap up this first part of our conversation, I wonder if you think that there's any danger, if you will, in studying cells, seeing what they do, and then saying, and humans are like that too. Meaning if we studied atoms and we said, well, humans are like atoms, or if we took a different part in the evolutionary chain and just presumed that humans were like this previous building block, because obviously these are building blocks of something bigger. So I'm wondering if you think there's any danger in this approach. Um, I don't think there's any danger. I th- I think one of the dangers, and I and I've had it for my own in terms of my own e- expression, is are we talking about uh, intelligent design uh, when we say we're like ourselves uh, or our molecules have information? And the intelligent, so for me, the intelligent design people (laughs) are so at the other end of science and denying evolution or the reality of who we are that I never, you know, the danger for me is I don't want people who are trying to understand cells or saying we're like ourselves to just put us into the intelligent design camp because it's not. Um, And I think, you know, it's like, For me, you know, it's like knowing Bruce Lipton's work. Bruce was probably the first person I ever heard who talked about cells work in cooperation. It was that was an aha moment to hear that. Um, It it gave me insight into oh, of course, that's more of the story. Cells aren't competing with each other. Normal cells don't compete with each other at all. (laughs) Cancer cells, well, they're not normal. They're competing for resources, but the rest of us is really cooperating and in alignment as much as possible. So I don't see the danger other than putting it into the camp of, oh, this is one more woo-woo person talking about, well, we're just like ourselves. Um, I see it as, um, I see it in a way as, divine guidance Um, that as above so below each we can we can learn from who we are at that level we're bigger than we're we're more than that and they can teach us I mean they're you know like I say in the book Uh, They're our oldest living ancestors. Why not learn from them? I've been speaking with Sandra Barrett. She's the author of a new book from Sounds True called Secrets of Yourselves, Discovering Your Body's Inner Intelligence. And it's a very provocative, stimulating, and revealing book. And Sandra, I'm so happy to have this conversation with you. And as I said, we'll talk again soon. I have a lot more I'd like to talk to you about. Great. I enjoyed our conversation too, Tammy. Soundstrue.com. Your cells are listening. Many voices, (laughs) one journey.